I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Trampoline Hall podcast. I am your host, Misha Globerman. Uh, Trampoline Hall, as you probably know, is a lecture series. Uh, It takes place in a bar, usually in Toronto, but sometimes in other cities. People give lectures on all kinds of subjects, with the one restriction being they cannot lecture on subjects on which they are professionally expert. After each lecture, we take questions from the audience. This, of course, is not Trampoline Hall, the show in a bar. This is Trampoline Hall, the podcast. Uh, And so the way that this works is uh, we go through our vast archives, and in each episode, we bring you one lecture from the archives. Uh, Some are old, some are new. They are all awesome. Uh, The podcast is arranged up into seasons. Each season is uh, six episodes. We are just at the start of our six-episode season. For this season, Kate Bars, a lecture selector extraordinaire, went through our archives and shows six amazing episodes for you. Uh, If you like the podcast and you're in Toronto, you should come see the show. Uh, Get on our email list. Come check us out. Um, It is great. But for now, now is not the time for that. That now is the time for this episode's lecture. I should tell you, you may be asking if it may contain mature language. And the answer is it may. But now on to today's lecture. The topic is the Golden Notebook and the lecturer is Onyeka Igwe. Seven whole years to actually finish the golden notebook. Um, but then I read 
some of her other stuff because I was like interested in her. Um, she wrote a whole load of things from like political criticism to autobiography, poetry, theatre, like everything. Um, I read like the politics and the science fiction stuff, and I'm still reading her like the aforementioned science fiction opus, which is called Canopus in Argus Colon Archives. <laughs> which is a great title. Um, so the first book I actually finished of hers was called The Good Terrorist, which is this like amazing takedown of the social conditions within radical political groups. I have been like political for a long time. Um, so I was like a teenager. I like had these like boycott Nestle kind of like badges on my bag and like I wrote manifestos and stuff and then when I got to university it became a bit more radical and I hung around in squats not didn't live in them just hung around in them and then I also like got involved in radical political groups so I was involved in this group called No Borders and I did all sorts of like direct action things from like storming businesses to like taking part in lock-ons when you get a D-lock and lock yourself to a building that's going to like release an immigration detention bans, like all this sexy political stuff. But then as I got older, left university, I kind of realised that these political expressions weren't actually doing anything. The revolution had not actually happened. And I started to doubt what I was doing. And also, like, I got arrested and there was a picture of me on the front cover of The Guardian at a protest. So I was no longer like undercover or whatever. Um, and I just also noticed that the social groupings within these political groups were really problematic. Like there were these cliques that kind of like controlled things and policed them. And I was always on the outskirts of these groups. Um, and that's kind of what the good terrorist is all about. And I thought, yeah, cool. Doris Lessing knows the same idiots that I do. Um, but back in the late 2003, I. The, uh, the Golden Network came back to me again because Doris Lessing died. And a friend sent me an obituary that another friend had written for Days magazine. And in it, it describes The Golden Notebook as a book about one problem. And the problem is how to desire a man as a woman without desiring your own subjugation. So yeah, I was like, cool, wanna read this. Um, <laughs> so The Golden Notebook, um, it's described as a feminist classic, but Lessing really doesn't like that because she's so obsessed with structure. And this book is like a, has this really interesting structure. It's kind of like a book within a book. So Lessing is writing about the main character, which is Anna Wolf, who is a writer, who, a lot like Lessing, wrote a book when she was younger that got turned into a film and was part of the Communist Party. So Anna Wolf is writing a book about a writer um, who... Um, um, wrote a book when she was younger uh, that got turned into a film. So there's lots of these, like I like to call them figure of eights, but I'm not even sure they are figure of eights. But again, this friend that wrote that obituary, Hannah Black, said that the book is a story of a woman going mad from heterosexuality who is writing a book about a woman going mad from heterosexuality. And meanwhile, the Communist Party is collapsing because of Stalinism. So as someone who was leaving this like radical political past, I guess, and also having several disastrous relationships with men, I was just like, I have to read this book now. It's the right time. I can relate. And boy, did I end up relating. So, <laughs> I read The Golden Notebook from 2000, December 2013 to September 2014, which makes me realize I'm quite a slow reader, but it's a really, it's a really big book. 
but kind of like halfway in this time, I decided I wanted to go to Berlin uh, just for a holiday. And I have a friend called Jim who regularly drives his van from London to Berlin uh, with art stuff, and that's his job. And he was going to Berlin with his girlfriend Lucy, and I was like, yeah, I'll come along. Um, I knew I was like quite close with him, and I thought I can deal with being a third wheel in this car. Um, so I was obviously reading the Golden Notebook. I had the book with me, and in the van, I was just like, flick, like reading it. And um, the part of the book that I was reading was the bit when Anna is Anna Wolf is writing her novel. Uh, the novel was called The Shadow of the Third, and in it there are the character Ella, who is the writer, like Anna, like Doris. Um, and she is having an affair with this guy called Paul Tanner. And I was like reading it and thinking, Paul Tanner really reminds me of someone. Um, there are a lot of similarities with him and this guy Jim that's driving me to Berlin. I mean, there was like the height thing, the good looks, and that kind of like literary aloofness that people have and Jim has. And even the, when I was reading the, the novel, there was this bit when Paul Tanner was like driving Ella away from London on this like trip. And I was like, yeah, I'm being driven away from London. <laughs> so I kind of had this vague thing about how Jim and Paul Tanner were kind of similar as I got to Berlin. And when I got there, I decided that I would look up this girl called Gilly, who was Jim's ex-girlfriend who lived in Berlin. I didn't know her very well, but I thought it was a good time to rectify it. So. <laughs> In the end, I spent my whole time in Berlin with Gilly, where she kind of detailed the ways in which Jim had completely, royally fucked her over. And it transpired that um, he had cheated on her with Lucy, this girl that was in the van with us. So I was like, when I got back in the van <laughs> on Monday morning, Jim and Paul are the same person. Um, so... Again, to like clarify, there are two things going on here, like real life and a story. And in the story, Anna Wolf is writing this novel about Ella, who's having an affair with Paul Tanner. And in real life, there's Jim, who had this affair with Lucy uh, when he was going out with Gilly. And I'm going to be in a band with Gilly, um, with Gilly, Jim, and Lucy. So, yeah, I got back in the van, not feeling so great, on like a post-Berlin come down, I guess. And I was just reading the book. And as I read on, I was just like getting more and more incensed and looking over at Jim and thinking, God, you're Paul Tanner. And I just had this like nervous energy, but I just like kept reading. And I was, I was kind of like, I, when I got to the end of this part of the book, it kind of ends with the pain and madness of Ella as she breaks up with and it just reminded me of Gilly. I mean, I spent this weekend with this really amazing, competent, intelligent, fiery, like, interesting woman who was kind of like broken with pain and like completely irrational because of this guy. And that was Paul and that was Jim. And I read this line that this part of the book ends with, which says, literature is analysis after the event. The physical reality of life, that is the living. And suddenly, my unique position dawned on me. Like, usually when you read a book, you're like this passive kind of, yeah, a passive reader. And all you can do is like, you get annoyed with characters, they don't do things and they miss things and you like wish you could be there. And I realized that I was there. Like I could do some living. I could like intervene on this travesty that was the way in which men treat women and the way in which women are like 
doomed by their own subjugation and desiring men. So I was sitting in the car, reading the book, looking at Jim, thinking, I need to do something. <laughs> um, I text Gilly, I was like, would it be okay if I like, said something to Jim? And she was like, yeah, 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 someone needs to say something, go for it, like, thank you. <laughs> Women need to stick together. And I was like, yeah, yes, they do. Um, so I like, resolved to do this, to like, tell him something. I didn't know exactly what would be a good time, but as we got to Calais to get the ferry back to the UK, there was this announcement that said there was going to be a two-hour delay. So I was like, okay, <laughs> this is it. So I was like, Jim, would it be okay? Like, we stopped in the car park. Jim, would it be okay if I talked to you about something? And maybe he knew what was going on because I was just been, like, sitting in a corner furiously reading a book the whole time. <laughs> he was like, no, it's not a good time. And I was like, Jim... Every single time you needed something, I was there for you. You have to be there for me now. And he was like, okay. So he kind of like sheepishly walked out a bit further out of, uh, from the van and we just walked out of earshot from Lucy. I didn't know how to begin, but I was just like, Jim, I think the way that you treat women is really bad. Uh, he looked at me really sheepishly and started to cry and said, this is not a good time. <laughs> but I was like fired up, so I just carried on talking and like saying all the stuff. And he was just like walking away from me. Um, and then like he walked back into the van and Lucy had obviously like seen his crying face and was like shouting at me, saying, how could I have done this after he's driven us like 18 hours? It's terrible, I'm terrible. So I was like, oh, I hadn't thought this through. So <laughs> I just grabbed my book and some bread rolls went to a bollard over far in the car park and continued to read for two hours. And then the, like, the ferry was announced and I felt like, and I couldn't see them and I felt like they'd abandoned me. So I went on the ferry as a foot passenger and just kind of like slept, read, slept. Uh, when we got to Dover, Jim did find me and we got in the car and it was such an excruciating journey where no one was talking to me. I couldn't read my book because it was dark. <laughs> and to make matters worse, when we got back to London, I'd missed my last train home. Uh, and I lived quite far away from things at that time. And so I had to stay at Jim's house. So I like, stayed in the living room on the sofa bed. And he went to brush his teeth. And he did this kind of awful, compassionate, magnanimous thing. And when I, he was going to his bed, he like squeezed my shoulder and told me everything was going to be OK. And I was just like... God, you're so Paul Tanner. But I felt, I felt quite bad. Um, I mean, the Golden Notebook kind of spread. Uh, like, I eventually finished reading it. And, like, loads of my other friends started reading it. It was kind of like this cool moment. Because I really feel like it mapped onto my life at a moment. And still does. Like, how to deal with politics when you realise that there's social shit going on above it and the revolution is not imminent. Um, and how do you deal with men when there's these power structures that control and govern the ways in which you relate to them? So yeah, like, it's still relevant to me. And it was kind of the best thing I did in 2014. And I actually don't regret confronting Jim. I still stand by everything that I was said, but it probably wasn't a good time because he had driven for 18 hours. Um, but just this summer, like a few months ago, Jim got in contact with me because we're still very good friends. And he was like, Anyeka, I think now is the time for me to for us to talk about what you were trying to talk to me about in Calais. So I guess now is my chance. <laughs> you 
You're listening to the Trampoline Hall Podcast, and I'm Misha Goldman. Up next, we'll see you today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Have you contacted him yet? Have you gotten in touch with him yet? Um, yeah, yeah. We took quite some email just today. Um... Yeah, no, I think he asked me to talk about it when he was, like, really high and uh, <laughs> kind of reneged on it a little bit. Oh. Um, but we will have that conversation when I, get, when I go back to London. I'm sure we'll talk about it. But I don't think a Skype would work, would suffice. Do you think a Skype would suffice? I don't think a Skype You don't think so, no. You have to actually physically be Yeah, in he's going to cry, you know? All right. So. <laughs> yeah. does, he, the, does he know that you're talking about it here? No, I'll tell right. him, though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think this would be like part of the dialogue. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Any other questions? Anything else you would like to know? Yes, over there, yes. Yeah, I, I bought a gold notebook in 78 or 79 when I was in my mid 20s, and I felt I need to read this kind of stuff. I never read one. But you never read it? No, no, I couldn't get through it. You couldn't read it at all? No. So you've had it since 1978 and made zero progress, so he read it much more slowly than you did. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. Is there a question, or are you just like, right on? It's a really hard book to read. Should you try to read it? Yeah, 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 you should. It's really hard, but I think there has to, I think it was the perfect time in my life to read it at that moment. Uh, And I think maybe it hasn't been the perfect time for you, but you should persevere. It's a really great book. Wait, how long? Should he, he bought it in 1978, so how much longer should he wait for the perfect time? Like, that's a long I time. I think maybe he should just do it, or maybe, like, listen to uh, an audiobook of it. Interesting. But that, does that, will you, are you willing to give the audiobook a shot? Is that why you don't want to read it? I, I, I never sit alone. I don't drive enough. So you don't, the audiobook's not going to work for you? What about before you go to bed? Right before you go to bed. Or when you're cooking? Cooking. <laughs> Okay, so drink cooking. All right, thank you. Problem set. Thank you. I feel like really solved the problem here tonight. Okay, yes, uh, you, ma'am, yes. Why is it so hard to read? It sounds great. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it, well, there is a lot. It's hard to read because it's like really dense. It's a really long, thick book. And also the copy that I had had tiny font. Um, and the first 100 pages are just two women talking in their kitchen. So you have to get past that before you get to the... And also, like, the end of the, the final notebook is, like, this weird, like, Hegelian synthesis. This is how Doris Lessing would sub- describe it, I guess. And she goes mad, and you kind of go mad with her. So, yeah, it's not easy. Uh, there is, does, that, does that answer your question? Yeah, that sounds very difficult. But read okay. it. But read it, okay. 
in the in the print in the print version. Yeah. Okay, all right, good. Anything else? Any other questions? Anything else? Yes, yes, you may. What's your relationship to politics now? Um, I'm kind of like in this, I don't, my relationship to politics is that I, like, I never went back on the things that I believed or felt or thought about politics, but I just don't think that direct political action in its current mode that repeats the same things that have been done for 30, 40 years with no results, actually something that I personally want to take part in because yeah, when I got arrested, I was like, this is shit, I don't want to get arrested um, again. This is, like, it, I had very, like, naive, sexy kind of, like, connotations about protest. And I think it's important for us to all, uh, us, people who are doing that kind of thing, to think about the ways in which these kind of political expressions, like, function in, in how you enjoy them, how they're, like, fun things to do, and separate that away from how it, it's political and it's going to and what's, change. and what's the what's the ideal connection between those things? Well, like, is it? It's good to do fun things, but like, I think that if I'm just going to a protest all the time because I really enjoy the feeling of being communal with people and like screaming and shouting and like getting aggy with police, um, <laughs> then that's not really doing anything for the cause or the things that I'm interested in. That's just me. I can get that in other ways. And you think that's a danger? The danger of that some people just doing yeah. fun. Well, no, I mean, it's actually interesting because Jim, the guy that we've been talking about, yeah. was one of the, he was like really, used to be involved in kind of black block stuff, and he was just like, I'm only doing it because like, all my friends do it, and it's like a fun thing for, <laughs> this accent that I've got, a fun thing for me to do. <laughs> and like, I, I think it was really honest of him because loads of people are actually like that, and I have aspects of that in my political action, and I just felt the need to like, draw a line, but I'm still figuring out a way that I can actually do politics that isn't just like sitting around talking about it or tweeting about it or making films about it. That third one seems different. Well, <laughs> you're just around talking or making movies, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm not sure that, like, originally when I started making videos, I was just like, yeah, this is a way for me to do politics, but I'm not even, it's easy, it's, an, it's like a it's nice... It's also fun. Yeah, it's really fun. It also might be like, oh, this is also, so there's that danger constantly, like, pulled into the thing that's just sort of fun and that's... And I'm not, I'm not anti-fun, I'm really into yeah, yeah. pleasure, but I, and I don't think they're divorced, I don't think, but I just think that, especially for things that aren't really working, maybe it's time to rethink different, I think there's different strategies and different ways of doing politics. Cool. Okay, thank you. Anything else you'd like? Oh, yes, you remember that, yes. What are you reading now? What are you reading now? Um, I've got, like, a few books on the go. I started that El Elena Ferrante Beautiful girl, thingy majiggy. <laughs> My beautiful friend, sorry. I started that, but I was all, I'm also like, yeah, reading the, this Doris Lessing science fiction thing. And, um, oh, I started reading The Mandarins by Simone de Beauvoir, but it was a bit too much like The Golden Notebook. Yeah. Um, on the back, yes. Do you really think it was, Yeah, I have the same question. Like, why was he crying? Was it just he was from driving? That's a weird response to driving. <laughs> was it his job to do that drive a lot? Was it, sorry, sorry? If it was his job to do that drive a lot? Right, especially given that it was his job. That's true. Even you even got this question too far than I did. Like, is it actually his job to drive from London to Berlin? Yeah, it's like you shouldn't have a job where you cry at the end of it every day. Um, I think he was crying because he knew that he'd been shit and like the whole week right. there had been like several things where he knew that I spent the whole week with Gilly he knew what he'd done to her 
and people would like he'd also done loads of lying while we were on the trip like we stayed with this girl that is our mutual friend and he didn't tell her that lucy was coming and then she found out and got annoyed so there was all this shit. he knew that he'd done wrong so, so the bad time to tell someone that they treat women badly is when they've been treating women badly. It's very inappropriate if you were telling me that I've just finished treating all these women badly. Don't you see how upsetting this would be to me? I mean, I guess I also like felt a little bit bad because I didn't pay for anything. And like, driven me for free. And I was like, oh, it's a bit like. That is a, that is a beautiful feminist story where you're like, well, I, don't, I can't really express my opinion because it is his car. Yeah. I mean, so just cry or just like to make himself vulnerable. Because yeah. it did seem funny when he was like, this isn't really a good time. And I was like, like it's like you just have like two hours has just appeared exactly. in which nothing has been scheduled and you can't do anything else. Like there's no claim to be like, oh, I was going to do what? Like during this two hour delay, it's like a perfect, I can't imagine. Two that. hours is a perfect time it's to get time into uh, the ways in which he and the category of men can treat women really badly. <laughs> Yeah. That also gives me, a, gives me a sense of how bad that he treats women. Like, it's not a four-hour conversation. Like, it's <laughs> I think it's a, it's a lifelong com uh, conversation for us all. Right. All right, cool. uh, uh, All right, who's up next? Uh, yes, yes, over there, yes. We'd like to hear more about the clinically and exclusionary political groups. Um, so I guess the kind of turning point for me, or the breaking point for me, was I was involved in No Borders for maybe like six years or whatever, from Bristol to London, and I like they knew me for a very long time, um, and I was always on the outside. Also, like I didn't wear all black and own walking shoes, and like I. I I didn't, I cared about clothes, you know, like, so I was, like, always on the outside of, like, these were, like, anarchist, kind of anarchist groups, right? I was always on the outside of these kind of social formations. Also, I was a bit younger, and I didn't hang out with them. But that's fine, like, it's fine to be not friends with people, like, I don't have to be friends with everyone, um, so that's okay. But, like, I was really annoyed because we did a convergence, where we brought loads of different groups together from all over Europe to discuss and do actions around, um, borders and migration and I was like heavily involved in all this like emotional labor of like of like setting things up and admin and looking after people and then I looked on Twitter and there was this like massive action that no one had actually decided that it was important for me to know about even though I was part of this group and I was just like this is it like this happened to me so many times I was never like invited to the stuff because I wasn't part of the group and I was just kind of like sick of it at that point I was like no I'm not going to do this anymore. Well, what prompted you to ask about that? Just piqued your curiosity. You're like, it's curious. I just you were just curious. I mean, are you part of those kinds of groups, or are you, are you not part of those kinds of groups? Or so you you sort of see what those groups say, and you're like, it sounds like there's some clickishness going on in there. Is there you're like, I wonder what it's like. And you're like thinking, of, you're like, I want to join, but I don't like to navigate clicks. Or something. <laughs> I guess I'm wondering, like, do you, I guess part of what, I, what I'm wondering about is, like, do you think that clickishness is more endemic to those particular kinds of groups, or do you think it's like, oh, all groups are like this, and it just somehow 
is it more disappointing in these groups because you expect something nobler, or I, I don't know, I'm curious. Mm, I don't know how I feel about absolutes. I don't know if I feel about all groups are like this, but yeah. maybe there's a tendency. Um, I think that it was disappointing because we, it, the social thing shouldn't have been the goal or like the thing that tied everything together. It should have been that we were doing, I don't know, maybe I had a bit of a pure idea of things, but I was like, we are doing politics now. Like, who cares if you're my best friend? There's loads of rubbish people in these groups that I didn't particularly like. But, like, for the, like, for the things that we were trying to do, for there were goals and, like, aims and stuff. And for that, like, you come together unless... Yeah, you come together. And I didn't really understand why I was being excluded just because I wasn't their, like, good friend. All right, cool. Yes, uh, yes, uh, over there, yes. So I'm a bit confused. Did your confrontation work? Did it, Great. Did did, did Jim change his behaviour at all based on that? No, no, not at all. Not at all. In fact, reports from London, he's got worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, no. Do you think that? Do you think there's any like? Do you think it's actually? You don't think it's causal though. You don't think that like. No. Just, no. Like, maybe if we had the conversation, like, I think like maybe if we had the conversation, maybe uh, I don't know. Like there's, I mean, the point that Lessing is trying to make is not really about individual men or people. Um, it is that there is this kind of like fallacy in heterosexual relationships in the fact that like the category of man and woman is a, is a category of like power and how can you have a relationship with someone like that it, within these structures um, and like the whole point is that Anna and are trying to be free independent women a bit like how Doris Lessing was but she just kept on getting in these loops because she would desire a man um, so it's not really about like Jim, <laughs> like he could do better, but like it's not like necessarily specifically about him. It, and like that wasn't what it was for me. I was just like, okay, this is an example of something that I feel has like I've experienced in many different ways and in many embodied in many different people. And here's my chance to like deal with it, but I can't solve Jim. <laughs> <What do> you... <laughs> I, can't, I can't solve him, and I can't like fix this structure. So what's the connection between like on the one hand feeling that you feeling frustrated with trying to like change the world through protest and on the other hand like trying to fix Jim? Like do you do you think that like like you're like you're like oh like there's all these protests and they haven't been bringing about the revolution and they haven't really changed the world. And then there's like Jim and it's like oh maybe like do you think do you do you think like oh maybe that's the kind of action? Like do you think that maybe no, rather than direct protest or maybe than making documentary films you want to or, or in addition to obviously not entirely but that like the, that sort of like personal intervention is, becomes part of your politics or something? Is that, is, is that, is that part of it? Uh, that's what people say, I think. That's what like has become kind of like, I mean, I do agree, like it is the, the personal is political and uh, it is important to like do politics in your every, everyday interactions and with people. But um, I think that the structures are more important and the structures take a more collective action. And I don't think me, like what I was doing, like I don't regret it or anything, and I still like stand by it because he's my friend, and I want him to be like not shit. But like <laughs> I, I like <laughs> it's not possible to like have a conversation with Jim. He changes his ways and things are solved. <laughs> Do you think that's not possible at all? No, 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 no. So I what's think... the goal of the conversation? Pardon? So what, what's the goal of the conversation? I the goal. The, like I was really like in this book. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed. I was really in the book, and I just felt like I. Like had this, I could see things like holistically in this moment. I was like, I can try and do something. And in the end, I guess like uh, it was a it's an attempt that didn't work and wasn't ever gonna work. Yeah. 
Have you had other moments where you've acted on, on the book in that sort of, in that sort of connected way? No, I mean, I think I've dreamed a lot about the, like, books that come into my dreams a lot, but I've not, this is like, it wasn't like the only thing either. <laughs> this is one incident in many. With the Golden Notebook, like, I, like, it really, like, crept into my life quite heavily because, like, it, it felt like I was, I was Anna and Doris and Ella and all these people, like, we were one and the same, but no, not with any other books that I think. All right, anything else? Any other questions? Yes, yes, over here. Is Lucy still seeing Jim? Is no. Lucy still seeing Jim? No. <laughs> All right, well, there you go. So you're like, okay. You're like, is that good news or bad news? If Jim's moved to this. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think? Oh, I just meant like, you were talking about perhaps if, if doing this had an actual. Right, so you think maybe that might be the effect? Yeah, the effect is that he couldn't hide this behavior, and now that people are aware of it, someone who's involved with them is actually right, so making it. So Jim can't hide it, and so Lucy at least can move on. Yeah, and actually some interesting thing that came out of it is that Gilly, like, found another girl that, like, also, like, Jim dicked around. And then became this kind of, like, cool, like, they had this, like, moment where they connected over this thing, and they were just like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but I feel like they Instagrammed some photo of themselves, like, yeah, sisters uniting or whatever. But <laughs> I found it quite pleasurable that, like, maybe it's, it's cool that these women can, like, find each other through that experience. <laughs> so, so if nothing else, Jim brings women closer together. Yeah, like he has like, he has, like amazing like taste. Like all these women are like really amazing. And he really so. screws over really wonderful women who yeah. can find each other. That's the way it happens, right? They're always screwing over the best ones. <laughs> all right, okay. Uh, 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 was there, okay uh, yes, yes, you over there, yes. I, I think of your, like your, the narrative you built around being a lot like direct action. Because it is by seeing the injustices that these women in the text were um, beholden to, you learn how to stand up your um, oppressor. Does that resonate? Like that's how I understood. So you, you think that she stood up? She stood up to her oppressor, like the characters in the book did. Is that well, like understanding that oppressor? That's how direct action works. Is by seeing a bunch of police beat up a bunch of black people. You're like, oh, police are off the black people. And similarly, like learning through lessons through this text that the Toxic masculinity is dangerous for women. In the context of the heterosexual relationship, you were awakened to your own discontent. <laughs> you should have wrote the conclusion to this talk.
how does it get stopped? Like, the structure that, like, the structure of gender being, like, destroyed. Right. <laughs> and that's a good conclusion for the talk. Ladies and gentlemen, Onyeka Igwe, ladies and gentlemen. Trampling Hall was created in Toronto in the 21st century by Sheila Hetty and is hosted by me. Uh, this episode's lecture was chosen by Life of a Craphead. That's the comedy duo Amy Lamb and John McCurley. The podcast is produced by Josh Block. Our theme music was composed by Matt Smith. Our coordinating producer and lecture selector extraordinaire is Kate Bars. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can help us out by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us out a lot. I'm Misha Globerman, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.